Welcome to episode 315 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. We now live in a world where Zoom is ubiquitous. And even though in-person meetings are starting to become more common, being able to expertly use and navigate Zoom is a crucial skill set in many roles, particularly if you're an entrepreneur. In my years of experience as an executive Zoom producer, I've gathered a deep understanding of how to run effective Zoom sessions. I've bundled 30 plus videos and a Zoom settings checklist into a handy PDF that I can send right to your email to always have it available. You can get this great resource by going to robbysamuels.com forward slash videos. Again, that's robbysamuels.com forward slash videos. And stay tuned for details of my forthcoming book, Break Out of Boredom, Low-Tech Solutions for Highly Engaging Zoom Events. You can join my book launch team if you'd like to get early access and additional bonus content. Sign up at robbysamuels.com forward slash breakout launch. Again, that's robbysamuels.com forward slash breakout launch. Reach out if you need support with a virtual event. I'd be happy to help. Now onto this week's interview. Today's guest is living proof that one can pursue one's passion in life and do so while making a profit. He's worked with some of the top companies and entrepreneurs on the planet, such as Shark Tanks, Kevin Harrington, Tony Robbins, Dean Graziosi, Kim Walsh Phillips, Ryan Levesque, Michael Hyatt, Claire Diaz-Ortiz, Lewis Howes, Brian Tracy, Jeff Walker, and so many more. He's here to help you on your quest to turn your passion and message into a profitable and growing business. He's been through the startup phase multiple times in the past two decades, and has built a following from scratch. Today, he lives out his passion for helping others find their purpose, passion, and path to profitability. He's the host of the Affiliate Guy podcast, your source for affiliate marketing news tips and strategies to take your online business to the next level. Please join me in welcoming Matt McWilliams. Matt, welcome. Hey, Robbie. Thanks for having me, bud. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us from your place, Indiana. Thrilled to have you on the show. As you know, it's a show about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I still don't feel like I do sometimes. Um, you know, for me, there's a, there's a lot of misconceptions uh, around leadership. Uh, this concept that, like, you know, we ha- we have to we have to recognize leadership isn't easy. Uh, you know, when we, we ask our students, we ask our, you know, people in our mastermind, like people on our events, like, how do you feel about being a leader? They're, they're like, well, it's scary. Uh, it's hard. It's overwhelming. I don't feel like I'm adequate enough, you know, and, and all of those responses are perfectly understandable. They're normal, but the problem is they're focused on, you know, they're focused on me. They're focused on the leader, not the, the person that you're serving, not your avatar. Right. And, and I remember like, you know, I, this goes back 20, gosh, 21 years. I ran for local school board. I remember the very first time I got up on stage to speak. 
know, this was a big election in, in where I was at the county at that time. And, and I don't know if it's still true in North Carolina, but at the time I was the youngest person to ever make it through a primary election in North Carolina history. And I got up on stage and I, I kid you not, before I went up on stage, I drank like a triple dose of Pepto-Bismol because my stomach was just going like, blah, blah, blah. and I realized, why am I nervous? Why am I nervous? Like, I know my ideas, my message are important. I know that they can transform the school system and help the students. Why am I nervous? Because it was all about me. Yeah, I felt inadequate. I felt like I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't qualified. But leadership, like anything, I mean, it, it, any, any relationship, marriage, parenting, doesn't matter. It requires a willful commitment. It just requires that you wake up every day and choose to commit to being a leader. And I write about this in my book, like leadership is a choice. And the thing is, your followers need you to lead them. Your audience, your tribe, your network needs you to lead them. Like there's somebody out there right now, right now who needs you to be their leader. In fact, there are potentially millions of people out there who are waiting for you to guide them. And so the, the example that I write about in the book that really like was, was a revolution or a revelation for me and a revolution for me was I didn't have to be two miles ahead of my audience. I, I, I had, I, <laughs> everybody that I've talked to so far said like, this is their favorite thing in the book. Like one of their favorite things in the book is I talk about like, you got this super fit friend, right? Like the kind of friend who's like, he's always jogging in place for no explicable reason. He comes to a barbecue wearing like the bike shorts and stuff. Always smells like soup mix. You don't know why. Like, but he's, he's been fit for as long. You know him since he's 14. He was ripped when he was 14, had eight packs when he was 14. And, and you go on a hike with him. And, and he's two miles ahead yelling back at you like, hey, watch out for the, watch out for the what? Next thing you know, you fall off the cliff. You know, he's too far ahead of you. We don't need to be two miles ahead. We think we do. We think we have to be the Jeff Walker in our industry who's been doing it for 20 years or the Tony Robbins who's been doing it for 40 years or the, you know, we got to be so-and-so, right? We don't, we have to be one step ahead. And actually, one of the things that I realized was what a better place to lead from. What a, a better place to actually reach back, grab somebody's hand and say, hey, watch out. There's a dip in the trail here and it's dangerous. And so, yeah, we have to be ahead of our audience. We only need to be one little step ahead. So we're at step B while they're at step A. We take them to step B while we're learning how to go to step C. Now, eventually you might find yourself like I've been in this game for 17 years now. I do find myself two miles ahead, but I never forget what it's like to only be one step ahead. Mm -hmm. and, and to me, that's, that's what the leadership is. And when you talk about networking and developing relationships, a lot of us think, gosh, I can't, I can't develop relationships with these people. I'm not at their level. You know, how do we do that? We serve, you know, we find a way to serve them. Like I didn't develop the ability to have a, you know, text message thread and just be able to like, and call on Jeff Walker to, to do things. I didn't get the endorsements I got for my book because I'm anybody special. I got it because I had served every person on there at some point in my life. I had done something for them. You know, Zig Ziglar said, we all know the quote, right? It's on my coffee. It's not on this coffee mug, but it's on the coffee mug I drink from most mornings. You can have everything you want in life. If you'll just help enough other people get what they want. And then the same thing is true. And to get, to help people get what they want, you don't have to be two miles ahead of them and be like this, you know, rock star bill. You don't have to be a billionaire to help millionaires. You don't yeah. have to be a millionaire to help thousandaires. <laughs> you know, you just have to be one step ahead. So many good pieces in there. I want to, I want to dive back in one 
just this very beginning, you said leadership isn't easy. I love that acknowledgement because I think a lot of people on a personal level feel inadequate and like they're failing and they're not doing enough. And they look at other people around them that they, they perceive as leaders and don't realize that everyone's probably having that moment of questioning themselves. They're doing, doing every good work. Of every day, yeah. Willful commitment, <laughs> that phrase, you said willful commitment as far as what leaders should be doing. I love that. And this whole piece of being one step ahead um, and the visualization, this is a great story you have in your book about that. And I, I also think about even even sub substitute teachers <laughs> who come in, they just have to read the chapter the night before and then they come and they teach it, right? Like they don't have to know everything that's happened the entire semester to still lead exactly. that class to learning. They just have to have a little bit of knowledge. And for me, that was very much true. I don't know how much you know my story, but I was focused on in-person conferences, teaching people how to network mm -hmm. at events pre-pandemic for a decade. And then no one needed that skill. Mm -hmm. And I became a virtual event design consultant and an executive Zoom producer. But it was because I was just a little bit ahead of everybody else on Zoom. Yeah. And then people were like, you're clearly an expert. And I was like, mm, I mean, so what would happen was people would come to my events where I would answer all their questions. They'd pose questions in chat. I'd give them 10 minutes in a breakout room. I would go research answers. <laughs> to their questions in those 10 minutes, come back and say, hey, here's a sort of top level answer. If you want more information, dig into this chat, you know, this link, this resource. Now, eventually I had all those answers. Like you yeah. said, eventually you get further ahead, but you don't want to forget what it's like to help people kind of just to step by step by step and not step. You don't want, you don't want to skip steps that people need to get to where they are. It's a great visualization. I'm actually curious though, if we were to roll the clock back, Matt, to who you were when you were a kid, uh, like on the playground, or wow. did you run for office in high school? Did your Ugh. teachers see your potential? Were you quiet? Like, what kind mm -hmm. of kid were you? Uh, so I was a very weird combination. Like when I do like the Myers Briggs and stuff like that, uh, I'm an introvert, and I am. Uh, I tell people all the time, like, uh, so if I get to know people for about a day, I remember I did a, a training about twenty some odd years ago. It was a seminar, and the first day was a Friday, and we 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 did our thing and, you know, we all spoke and we did stuff. And then the second day they reviewed our Myers-Briggs results. And, and I'm, I think I'm an INTJ and the I is for introvert. And the one guy, Chip Schultz, he, you know, he called, he called bovine scatology on that one. For those of you who don't, you can just put the initials together. You'll figure that one out. Um, so he's like, no way. There's no way you're an introvert. I'm like, no, I really am. He's like, the, but the introvert that I am, it's the same way I am to this day. I come to, I'm in an event, whether I'm speaking on stage or I'm in a crowd or we're doing this, I'm good for about an hour. Family events, same way you see me at Thanksgiving. People think I'm very, like if you came in at certain times at like a family gathering, you would think, wow, he's really antisocial. I'm not antisocial. I just spent 90 minutes engaging with people. I need 30 minutes to myself. I have to recharge my battery. So I, I'm an introvert by nature. I play an extrovert and I, and I've become an adaptive extrovert. Sorry. I play an extrovert and I've become an adaptive extrovert because it's, it's been necessary for so long in my life that I've, I've grown accustomed to it, but I have to go recharge my battery. I was the same way as a kid. Like if, if, if given the choice between the two options, like go play with friends or sit inside and do something by myself, I would choose to do something by myself. Once my parent, my mom at that time, and then eventually my dad forced me into those situations or I got forced by circumstances, right? Like I had to ride the bus home and my best friend was on the bus. 
So we got off the bus and next thing you know, I'm at his house and we played video games for two hours. I, I don't remember making a conscious decision. It just happened. When I was forced into situations, then I was fine. I would go play with my friends. We'd have a blast. Hour and a half, two hours, I had to withdraw. I was a kid who could be the life of the party. I was the class clown. I was always the class clown. I've had ADHD for as long as I can remember. And, and, and so I was always the class clown. I was always acting up. I was always the fun one. I was always the one who was quick with the joke. I, I've, uh, if, you, if you know me long enough, you'll know that I'm, I'm missing a little bit of that filter in a good way. And that the reason I, somebody asked like, man, how are you so funny? And, and, and this like sounds like I'm self-aggrandizing. I'm not. The reason I'm so funny is I'm willing to say the one thing where you go, that doesn't make any sense to say the 39 things that make you fall on the floor laughing. That's what comedy is. Like, but if you're not, most people are not willing to take that chance. They can't get past the fact that it could be that one time out of 40 that they'll say something stupid or even a little bit offensive or even a little bit like that guy might be clinically insane to have the, to have the 39 times they make people fall on the floor laughing. I never had that filter. I've never had that fear. So it's a, I kind of had this weird combination of, you know, introversion, but class clown type thing. Uh, I was never growing up, you know, like the networking side, again, because of that introversion was an acquired skill. I became very, very good at it later in life. Uh, I became pretty good at it in my teens because I lived, uh, my dad ran a golf course in the Nashville area. And so it was nothing for me to go outside and play golf with, you know, just walk out and be like, I'm playing with Vince Gill or, oh, there's Jack White from the White Stripes. You know, like there's Clint Black. If you don't know country music, some of these people you won't know, but like, you know, the White Stripes at least, right? Yeah, I played with the guys growing up in Atlanta. My, all the, Bra the Atlanta Braves, the Atlanta Falcons and the Atlanta Hawks played at my dad's golf course. So it was nothing for me to be out there. I'm like, that guy won the Cy Young last year. I'm playing golf with him. Like it, that was nothing. I, I didn't think anything of it. But I also came from a background with my mom. I grew up with a single mom and then moved to live with my dad right when his career took off. So I grew up with a single mom who I, I helped her do her taxes a few years back before she retired. I know for a fact she never made more than $38,000 in a year. And that was later when 38,000 was less than what the average American was making, considerably less. So I know both sides of that equation of the socioeconomic spectrum. But then growing up in that environment and seeing, being exposed to that, where I'm out there with attorneys and doctors and people who, to kids who came from my background, these are the people you don't talk to. And I'm out there like, you know, goofing off with them, you know, and like, I, I didn't, I, I would tell jokes to them. I wasn't an incredible opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, it was kind of weird. And that led to me becoming a little bit of an adaptive networker of sorts and being able to develop those relationships over time. It's really interesting. When you first started, you were talking about um, Myers-Briggs, which I know is somewhat a flawed, but you know, interesting yeah. personality test. I'm ENTJ, both INTJ and ENTJ are, are one of the rare. Those are both very rare um, of all the traits. I seem to know quite a few both because the kind of people I hang out with, I think, lean in those directions, the NTJs. Yeah. But, um, you know, being introverted or extroverted for me, it's about energy, like how you replenish the energy yeah. um, and how long it takes you to, to recharge. But then there's how outgoing you are. So clearly you're very outgoing. You just you just spend down the battery you have very quickly because you're so outgoing and then you exactly. recharge. 
So people know you like when you're in a room, they know you're in the room until you're like, I'm done. I'm going to go somewhere else. And like, yeah, that's exactly. I mean, that yeah. is a great way of describing I, it. That, I, that's the difference between I an did an outgoing introvert. She put it all out there. She, yep. when she was, when she walked out the door, she was on fire. And then she would be in her like yoga pants for three days at home. <laughs> yeah. That's like, the thing. It's introverts are not incapable of being around other people. That's the misconception. Well, you're clearly not shy. I mean, like you're outgoing and not shy. And yeah. then, but like this other piece you mentioned, which I knew a little bit about your history here, but like this idea of growing up with a single mom who's struggling, she's, you know, doing what she can to take care of you and create a loving home. And you don't know what you're lacking because you don't have anything compared. I mean, you have what you have to then suddenly find yourself in more affluent spaces where there are luxuries and where you get access to all these people who are like stars. I mean, like legit celebrities and, and to be a teenager and those awkward, everyone has awkward teenage years. I don't know how anyone can escape that, but that, but to use that all as a springboard for like where you want to go and to have both of those, this reminds me of like rich dad, poor dad, like, you know, um, the, the sort of psyche that you understand, Oh wow. People talk this way. I never learned that or people talk about money or savings or investing or things that just don't come up when you're just trying to find money for groceries and gas, you know, just, you don't think to tell your kids to invest. Yeah. Um, and, and those, those feelings come back all the time. Like I remember, uh, the, so this is a funny story. I, we were, um, we were at Dolly Parton's house. No joke. I, we were at her house for a, a the event with a bunch of like, you know, fancy people in Nashville. And, I was just running around like a kid, you know, I was, this was 1991. So I was 12. Maybe, maybe I just turned 13, but I think I was still 12 and I was playing with the other kids and we were running. And after about five minutes, you don't realize you're at Dolly Parton's house anymore. And it is a nice house, but it wasn't like opulent. You know, this was not like, Oh, mansion mansion, you know, um, like much more, normal than you would think at least back down order houses like today but you know this is 31 years ago so we're running around and i run thinking that's an open door it was not it was a screen <laughs> and i literally put it's like the cartoons where they show the guy who goes through the bushes and it leaves his exact shape i left my shape through dolly parton's screen door that's an impression is what you're saying. And then and pro, I mean, it slowed me down just enough with my upper body that I face planted on, you know, the hardwood floor, stone floor, whatever, you know, not face plant my hands. I was like, and it hurt. And of course I turned around and I was so embarrassed and it had nothing to do with the fact that it was a Dolly Parton's house and everything to do with the fact that I just face planted in front of a group of a hundred people. Like, in fact, the fact that they were adults made it less painful than if they'd been my age, you know, I didn't care that they were famous and rich and the average income there was probably $25 million a year. That meant less to me than the fact that, Oh crap, did anybody who's roughly my age see this happen? You know? And so, yeah, that, that ability to be exposed to those types of things and to recover from something like that. And I mean, just the whole rest of the day, like I ended up making a joke of it, you know, like every door I went up to the rest of that night, I was like, I'd run up to him and be like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, and by the, like, and it wasn't a big deal. And I remember like, she, I don't even remember what she said. You know, she came over and said, you know, no big deal. Probably the, probably had a new screen door installed within the next like seven minutes. You know, it's 
you doing? You got that kind of money. But anyway, it was one of those things, right? You know, um, those types of experiences. I mean, yeah, like how much did that actually shape me? Probably more than I'll ever realize the ability to like, if I can do that, what what's getting up on a stage? What's sending an email that makes me nervous? You know, like I, I mean, some of the clients that we got, they happen because I reached out to people said, Hey, I heard you're in a situation. How can I help? I'm actually really nervous, but I did it. I'm kind of curious about that. So when you were 12, 13 years old, did you have a sense of what you wanted to be? Like was college part of your destiny now that you had a parent who could help you with that? Was there a a career trajectory that you were kind of glomming onto? 12 and 13. I wanted to play basketball. Uh, I was still pretty good at basketball then. Um, Proud to say, you know, I feel like uncle Rico from Napoleon diamond never lost a game in middle school had nothing to do with me. It was all my teammates because <laughs> I played with four guys who went on to play D1 basketball, just to give you some perspective, two Mr. Basketballs in the state of Tennessee on the same team. Um, it was not because of me, but I still thought I could play professional basketball, you know, or at least go to college and play basketball. So that's what I thought. Then uh, at the age of 13, I fell in love with golf, uh, which is what I ended up. So by 13 and a half, I was like, I'm, I'm playing professional golf. I always thought that's what I would do. Um, left college early, turned professional, played for a couple of years after. I had an injury that uh, they found out. It took them two years to figure out what it was, um, but it was just actually I had bones out of alignment in my left wrist. To this day, if I um, like just just last night, I caught a, I had a soccer ball. Normal person wouldn't have even felt. They would have been like, whatever. It was not going that fast, and it just kind of tweaked my wrist the right way. And for about an hour after, I was I was like, gosh, that hurts, you know. So basically my options were uh, not play for two years, have surgery, complete reconstructive surgery. I was going to be out for about 18 months to two years or quit. And I chose the latter. Uh, that was when I fell in love with online marketing though, because I went to work for my dad and we had these golf schools. I was 20, 22. I just turned 22. We were doing these golf schools, Robbie. I'm, I'm not joking. In a weekend, we'd have four people come who paid $2,000 each. My dad and I would split it 50-50. I'd make $4,000 in a weekend at the age of 22. It was ridiculous. Then I went, well, dad, what if we had more people at these schools? What if we got did this? There's this website called Google. I don't really understand it, but like basically like people use it. I think I used it like once to search for something. <laughs> but like people will search. And if you pay them a little bit of money, they'll send you traffic. And, and so nowadays we teach people, of course, you know this, right? You come to my website, you download my free report, you watch my free video, you do something where I collect your, your lead. And we call that a lead magnet. I write about my dad and that we can talk about that story in a little bit, uh, you know, with lead magnets, but we build an email list. We, we nurture the list and we sell them something. That's the short version, right? But back then you basically had two options. Give me $2,000 or leave, but the clicks only cost 10 cents. So I would convert one out of 200 visitors. You can do the math, one out of 200, 10 cents a click. It cost me $20 to acquire a $2,000 customer. Now, I remember very vividly, we had a, it was in January, maybe early February. We had an ice storm where I lived in Pinehurst, North Carolina. But our golf school started, we ran a March 1st, typically through the late May, early June. Then we take a couple of months off in the heat. And then basically post-Labor Day, September, October through early December, and on a weekend, you know, at that time we were making like $4,000. We started running these ads, sales increased dramatically. Wow. Like we were getting customers per day for like every day to give us thousands of dollars. And I'm going, oh, I'm 22. I lived with my mom. I paid her $250 a month for rent. 
and like a hundred bucks for utilities. I'm like, holy crap. I mean, I was making astronomical amounts of money. And I remember sitting there one, it was a Saturday afternoon, ice storm, don't leave the house, can't leave the house. Like in North Carolina, if there's ice, you don't go anywhere. <laughs> and I'm like all day long, don't judge me, but I sat there all day long watching an Allie McBeal marathon on FX. And I had a ding set up on my computer. And I usually wasn't there to hear it, but a ding when we made a sale, 10 a.m., ding. Woohoo, made a thousand bucks, you know, 2,000 divided by two. 11.30, ding. Eating lunch, sitting there watching Allie McBeal. I'm on like episode four, stuffing my face with a Totino's pizza. It costs like $1.99. Ding, I just made $1,000. I just bought 500 Totino's pizzas and I haven't even moved, you know? All right, three o'clock, ding. Five o'clock, ding. Long story short, seven sales in one day. I made $7,000. My dad and I split it, the $14,000. $7,000. I didn't leave my house. I was like, yeah, this internet marketing thing might be something to... What year is that? That was 2000... That was... That would have been January of 2002. So January interesting. 2002. Okay. So I'm, I'm just trying to place. Maybe I, three. I no, think two. that uh, it's it's early, right? It's early yeah, days. 20 it's 20 years ago. It's early days of what people think of as what like this new fandangled marketing is going to look like. People don't really understand the value of it. It's also really amazing that your, your professional athlete goals get sidelined. And here you are in your early 20s having to make a, a life decision, like a major life decision about whether yeah. to you know, focus on surgery and rehabilitation and get back. And can you get back to professional level quickly with a long break, which is hard to do, or do something else? And that must have been very difficult. You didn't know that something else, like if you knew that something else was going to be amazing, <laughs> that would have been very easy. But you don't know that. You're basically like, yeah, I'm going to help my dad out. Like, we'll see. And then to stumble onto testing these early marketing opportunities the, the yeah. cost per click was so low and the conversion rate was so high which is remarkable for a very expensive particularly at that time uh product yeah a very personalized product when did you realize that it wasn't just something you could do for your dad but that you could teach that this was something people like suddenly you're on the leading edge of this technology but that you wanted to actually be in the front of the classroom because you don't up to this point have experience presenting and you're actually yeah. kind of a, a, a person who's not like thinking of themselves that way, being in the front of yeah. the room that way. You're, you're the clown in the front of the room. You're not the teacher in the front of the room. Yeah. Like I said, I, around that same time I ran for the, you know, ran for a local election that kind of opened my eyes to why, why did you run for local election? How did that come about? Very, very long story that involved a, a local school board member who had become a friend that uh, I will just say was very much mistreated um, by some other board members. Uh, without getting into all the details, I saw some issues in the school system. I felt like they needed uh, they needed a younger voice. I think the youngest person on the school board was like 41. And that was kind of like the whole thing was I remember there was one of the uh, this is when I realized, okay, there might be a gift here, you know, for this type of stuff. One of the ladies, um, she's, she had a park named after her. Like, this is who I'm running against. Right. Um, she, I mean, she's literally like a local legend. She gets up there. She's like 68 years old. And she's like, I have been in the education industry for 43 years. And I responded without missing Go, I have been alive for half that long, <laughs> you know? And I mean, just like took her thing and went boom advantage on my side. 
I just, I just left the school system. I can relate to these kids. I know the problems. Like you guys honestly don't have a clue what is going on in the schools. I'm just going to let, I'm like, no offense to you. You don't know what's going on. I mean, that's a real leadership you know? moment for you to raise your hand, to, to see injustice decide that you're going to do something about it and to put your name forward. I mean, I've, I've been part of some local campaigns. It's a yeah. lot of work everyone oh involved. gosh yeah well mostly it was just hammering yard signs into concrete because we had a drought that year just there's a special note don't ever run for local office in the middle of a drought oh um, got it noted if, everyone listening yeah. pay attention to that one <laughs> we <laughs> had a cooler that we took around with water ostensibly to fuel our thirst because it was so hot as well we ended up using half the water to just get the ground oh man that's the thing people don't know like not to get into that the weeds but Local elections is 100% name recognition. Yep. 98% name recognition, 2% your, your, the issues. And so, you know, he or she who has the most yard signs usually wins. Yeah. And so we went around, I mean, like there was not an intersection that saw more than 50 cars a day that didn't have one of our signs at it. And that was all just grunt work. We were out, there were nights we were, I got pulled over multiple times at like four in the morning because we're, we're slowing down, you know, at, at the wrong time, pulling over. And they're like, what are you doing? We're like, yards. Oh, okay. You're good. <laughs> you know, what, a couple of like, lesson? don't tell anybody, but I'm voting for you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what was your biggest lesson having, uh, having that experience of running for local office? Um, the biggest lesson is not really a lesson per se, but it proved, um, it proved to me that I had the ability to communicate. You know, I, I remember, um, you know, I remember sitting back, uh, there was a guy who ended up the following year ran for governor or two years later ran for governor in North Carolina, who's a big deal in local politics. He was, he was a friend of the family, but he and I didn't particularly get along. And, you know, this again, he's like 58 years old. He's my elder. I'm supposed to look up to him and I'm sitting in the back scribbling some notes for this speech. So I have no idea what I'm going to say. And he looks at me, and goes a little late to be doing that. Isn't it? Ha ha ha. And I remember going, nah, <laughs> like not to him, but I just remember thinking, no, this is how I do it. Like if I plan more than like five minutes ahead, I'm not going to convey what I want to convey because I'm going to this event. I don't know the audience. I get there, this audience, see where I lived in th this county that I lived in, you had the retirement community, the area, the people we, we called it basically, it was just a bunch of, tra bunch of transplanted Yankees. That's what we said, not judging, just saying that's what we call them down there. The other side was people who were like eighth generation from that county very different demographics. Okay. Just to be clear. And so when I went to that, it's the first time I'd ever spoken there. And I realized they, they care about different things. There are things that I can, uh, they're a little bit at that time, I would consider them to be quote unquote, more my people, right? These are the people that I don't have to, I can just talk normal, <laughs> you know, too. And so I'm planning what I'm going to say, because I'm basing it on how are they reacting to other candidates and what they're saying? I'm basing it on, I'm not changing my positions. I'm changing how I communicate. It's kind of like, you know, here, we've talked about mostly, other than the random things like in Alan McBeal, you know, we've talked more about the networking side of things. We haven't talked about all the other online marketing stuff. Right. And, you know, of course, I would love for people to go get my book and whatnot, and we can talk about that. But we're doing it in a certain, uh, we're, we're in a certain box, yeah. And I learned that I could do that and I could communicate on the fly, the ability to respond to that lady and go, I have been alive half that long. I couldn't have planned that. I didn't know she was going to say that. And it, and it opened my eyes to, wait a minute, I have the ability, the way that my brain processes things is a gift. I had childhood epilepsy. 
that directly led that they believe uh, to uh, to ADHD. But what people don't realize is like childhood epilepsy, ADHD. What my doctors found out when they do the brain scans is the synapses in my brain fire seven times faster than the average human beings. So I am processing things at seven times the rate. That is dangerous. All right. That is, it is actually extremely dangerous. I have to be very, very careful about certain aspects of that because I can, in the middle of talking right now, there could be a squirrel outside my office and I'd be like, well, well squirrel, <laughs> literal squirrel, you know, and it does happen. My brain can be all over the place as you may or may not have seen already. Yeah. And so that can well, be dangerous. But the superpower is when she said that, I, I mean, I didn't have to think about it. Right. Most people, and I'm not, this isn't, I'm better than anybody. It's just, I have this skill that some people don't, they can't mentally process something like that, that fast. I think what you also realize is that you have the ability to speak to different constituencies or they might think different avatars or different demographics, you know, that you, that, that the message has tone Mm -hmm. differences or example differences, right? So that was a lesson, it sounds like, that also applies really well for the marketing that you were doing. At what point did you become an entrepreneur? Like this became your thing that you yeah. were selling. How old were so you then? Or I have been ago? an entrepreneur since the age of 22. Um, I, I have worked for other people. So I worked from 2000, May 15th, 2009 to early 2011. I ran the internet marketing department. Uh, for a company as an employee, you'll notice that was not very long. I got really restless after about 18 months and I let, you know, I was just like, Hey, I, I want to go back and do this entrepreneur thing. So it's, it's something that I saw indirectly in my dad. My dad was, was he, he, he ran golf courses. So he was hired to run golf courses, but he always had the entrepreneurial bug. I could see it. Uh, he ended up eventually starting his own, you know, business and starting his own, you know, golf instruction business. And so I, I wouldn't say that it was like a lot of people who just grew up like my kids, they've never known anything other than daddy's an entrepreneur. They literally have never known anything like that. When I moved my office down to the basement from upstairs, because my son literally spent all day being able to see me when he was about a year old, we moved my office from up there down to the basement. He was a basket case for a full week when I would be downstairs, like he just had always grown up being able to see daddy still to this day, he comes down here every day. He might, he might come down here in the middle of us talking right now, probably not wearing a shirt, you know? <laughs> and so like that, that, that idea of what the, the freedom that it brings has always been attractive to me, to me. I've never, I've never been particularly, um, you know, I've always been blessed since well, I shouldn't say that I've, I've known what it's like as a, in my professional life to be, pretty close to broke. Mm-hmm. I mean, we went through a, a period uh, a few years ago where, I mean, we were basically down to our last couple thousand dollars. You know, I've been fired from, or not fired, but I've been forced out of a company and left with nothing, you know, uh, contractually in the agreement that we have. They didn't owe me a dime when they were, when they forced me out. It was kind of an ugly situation, you know, about 10 years ago. I've been through those, but I've been very blessed to mostly have been in my adult life to been on the right side financially but I've never been driven by, you know, the financial side of things. Right. Personally, That's our scorecard in our business. If we do 5 million next year versus 4 million this year, you know what? We, we, we did stuff better. There, that's a, that's a, that's a result of the other things that we did better. But yeah, I mean, I've, it's just always been in me to be an entrepreneur, I think. So let me, let me ask you a question. This is a quick, quick answer on this one. 
Yeah. What was the first service or product you were selling when you switched to, to selling things for yourself? Selling for myself, uh, website design. And who I was guess. it for? Like, who were your market? Uh, anybody local back then. And then eventually it became political local. candidates. Like we were kind of the first people. Uh, if you remember the Howard Dean campaign of 2004, yep. um, basically we just copied what they were doing. Um, yeah. <laughs> good artists yeah. copy, great artists steal. So um, local, local businesses and yeah, like local lo campaigns. Local we basically campaigns. applied like the national online fundraising of 2002, 2004 to very yeah. localized, like gu gubernatorial on the high end type campaigns. Yeah. And when um, did websites stop being the thing you focused on and you, you shifted? 2005, uh, I consulted for a company that was run by a friend uh, to build their website. I built the first version of their website. Next thing you know, I'm doing their sales and running their IT department and started this thing called an affiliate program. And I'm like, wait a minute. Are we like business partners now? <laughs> like, what the heck? How did this? I was I was running my own business. Now I'm spending 40 hours a week working for you. And we we ended up starting that business. And, and that was actually the one that was the kind of my first exposure to not just like a small business with like three or four of us to, you know, we grew it to, you know, multi-million dollar a year, you know, multi-million dollar a month, sorry, uh, 52 employees and and all the was the affiliate was affiliates sort of as a thing well-developed back then? No, no. Was it um, really nascent? It's, it seems like that was like early days even for that. Gosh. So that was, it was Memorial Day weekend, 2005, Robbie. And we were basically ready to go broke. Had no money. Uh, couldn't make payroll in two weeks. You know, we just paid down. We're like $4,000. We owe seven, you know, for payroll. And I was like, guys, we need kind of a miracle. We had this meeting on Friday and we we're like, I mean, it was like, it was the business equivalent of trying to find change in your couch to pay for college was what we were trying to do. <laughs> we were like, well, we could run this ad and we'll make $17. I'm like, woohoo. I was like, what about this affiliate thing where like you start a program and they like, they do the marketing for you and then you don't pay them for like 30 days after. And, and I do not suggest what I'm about to say. Just to be clear, I am not endorsing what we did. It was an idiotic thing. I regret doing it. It happened to work. We started this affiliate program, not this part. I'll tell you, you'll get to the part where I regret it. I spent all of Memorial Day weekend. I didn't go to a party. I didn't go with my friend that was wearing bike shorts, you know, anywhere and eat hot dogs. I did nothing. I literally sat in the office for 18 hours a day, barely slept, trying to learn how to run an affiliate program. There was nothing back then. There was no affiliate guy podcast. There was no mattmcwilliams.com. There was no nothing that like said, here's how all the things you need to know how to run an affiliate program. There's no courses. I just made it up. I started reaching out to people. I got my first affiliate guy named Brandon Miller. Hey, Matt, it's Brandon. He's from West, Eastern North, no, Western North Carolina, the mountains. If he called me today and said, hey, Matt, I'd be like, Brandon, you know, 20 years later. And he, he, so we got him. We got another guy named Lev Berinsky. He was a hot dog salesman outside of Ohio Stadium for Ohio State games. He was also an insurance agent. We got a bunch of other people. They signed up as affiliates. We floated that money. <laughs> we were not making enough yet that we owed 30 days later, we had to pay them. And we were really hoping that they would keep making sales for the next couple of weeks to be able to pay. And eventually we got like from being 30 days behind to 20 days behind to, oh my gosh, 18 months later, we're doing a million dollars a month just from our affiliate program. And How did so you that was the, the idea. Of it, though. Like where did this idea for an affiliate program I, come from? So there's a guy named, I don't know if you remember the name, Corey Rudell. He was like one of the godfathers of internet marketing. Um, and he, sadly, he passed away like 12 years ago or something in a Corvette accident. But um, 
he had a course that I bought. It was back when internet marketing courses, you bought them and then you waited for three weeks for them to get to your house. And they were on DVDs and like this cheap plastic binder and they were like $99, you know? So I got that and he mentioned doing affiliate marketing. And it was like, I'm not joking. It was 10 minutes of a 15 hour course. That was it. That was my, exp and, and I was like, could we do something like that? It gave you the idea. It, yeah. it gave I mean, you the kernel. I yeah. didn't, I didn't think anything of it for four months. Yeah. You know, you that, needed was, it. that was the, the genesis of it. Was that I mean, desperate times, right? Come for innovation, right? You're, you're like, well, we it's were, not working. See the doors closed or we try this. We were four. Well, I'll put it this way. We were our second meal into that meeting. We'd been in that meeting for at least four five, six hours. I don't even know how long. Yeah. Uh, I remember we were eating Chinese food from Ricky's. <laughs> I mean, I can remember, I can remember every detail about this. I can tell you what I was yeah. eating. We were eating Chinese food and I was like, what about affiliates? And we were like, well, that's the only thing that doesn't require us to pay money up front. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing that like, we might be able to see guaranteed. Like we were doing SEO. We had a little bit of stuff coming in from SEO and then like six months later, our SEO, we got lucky or, you know, or whatever we got paid finally for the, and we were doing, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a month from SEO at that point. But at that point we were doing like $2,000 a month and it wasn't, there was no guarantee that it would accelerate fast enough in two, three weeks to make payroll. Um, right. And that was what was attractive. And it was like, okay, we're going to put all of our eggs in this basket. We were going to like, and by way, well, we, it meant me because I was the only one who had a clue what he was doing which wasn't much. I kind of just made it up as I was going. And then, yeah, like I said, about 18 months later, doing over a million dollars a month from it. So today, who is your ideal person? Like, how would I know if I was talking to someone, what would they be saying to me for me to think, oh my gosh, you've got to meet Matt McWilliams? I mean, it, it kind of depends because we have three very distinct audiences. So, you know, that the high end, you know, yeah, you're running a six, you know, mid high six figure, seven figure business. Uh, you want to take it to the absolute next level with your affiliate program, whether you have one or not yet. So, I mean, the people that we work with, they're like, you know, you mentioned their names at the beginning, right? Yeah. Uh, those are the type of people that we help there. The next group is in the middle where it's like, Hey, I've, I've got a, I've got a blog. I've got a podcast. I'm making a little bit of money, but man, I just, I want to take it. Also want to take it to the next level. Like I know that I have a decent sized audience. I know I can make a lot more money. We can teach you both affiliate marketing and how to start an affiliate program that'll take things to the next level. And we've worked with tons of people there. And then, you know, at the bottom level, you know, we got my book, Turn Your Passions into Profit, which is people like, hey, I've got an idea. I've got a message, right? I, I talked about that at the beginning when you asked me about leadership. You know, I, I have a message. I want to lead a group of people, whether it be, I want to lead people to to grow organic vegetables in their backyard, or I want to, you know, help people with self-defense, or I want to help people start a business. I want to help people with their marriages. They're, you know, raising kids, losing weight, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It could be one of a million different things. I have a message. I have a passion for this thing. How do I turn it into a profitable business? And we help people there because really, you know, if you've got the message and the passion, but you're not making any actual money for it, I mean, that passion is only going to carry you so far. You know, I, I wish it didn't because I've been there and done that. But like my kids, for some reason, they're the, the youth soccer program here in Fort Wayne. They just don't take it when I'm like, man, but I woke up this morning. I wrote a blog post and 82 people commented on it and they loved it. And I helped a lot of people. And they're like, yeah, we need fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> you know, the mortgage company wasn't taking my passion. 
You know, it was yeah. the money that paid this house off early. Like that was, it was the actual money. So you've got to have both so you can keep doing it for the long term. You mentioned the people that we, we just uh, shared in the intro. Um, you, you've worked with some real household names and you mentioned somewhere in this uh, that you had done some cold outreach to some of these folks. Um, I mean, now you're, you're, you're a name yourself. <laughs> uh, so it's easier for you to knock on doors and have people open them. But when you're first getting started and this is who you were setting your sights on, how, was there an introduction initially into this? Did you have one person you worked with that you could use their name to like leverage in? Like how did, I mean, a lot of us want to uplevel the kind of clients we work with, but wouldn't have any idea how to go from who we have today to these, you know, multi six figure, multi million dollar uh, business owners. So how did you make, I mean, there's part of it's a mental shift. So, so mentally, how did you shift that who you are and what you could do. And then how did you technically get access to some of these folks? Yeah. So the very first, uh, I had a little bit of a, to be clear, I had a little bit of a reputation uh, because I had, you know, ran an affiliate program already as an entrepreneur uh, for a company that I worked for and well, a company that I owned and then a company I worked for. So I'd won, you know, a few affiliate manager of the year awards and I was, I was pretty well known. And, and just to be clear, that does make it a heck of a lot easier but I'd never worked with like anybody famous or anything like that. I didn't work with Jeff Walker's or Tony Robbins of the world. Uh, those types of people came to me. They, they texted me, they emailed me, they called me and said, Hey, heard great things about you. Can we work with you? But in those early stages of starting my business, doing what I'm doing now, uh, what I did, the very first one I got was because I saw a tweet said, I'm looking for a solution to this problem. Who can help? Now you could argue that's lucky. What are the odds of seeing any individual tweet? You're right. But I also see a lot of emails. I see a lot of Facebook posts. And so I, we got a client recently where uh, I got an email from them. Or no, I saw a Facebook post. Again, what are the odds of seeing any individual Facebook posts? Roughly two, three, four percent. But I saw the Facebook post, said, We're looking for an affiliate manager. I went, boom, email, typed it to her. So they are now a client. We just started working with them last week. This very first one, he had a book launch coming up. And, uh, and I said, um, Hey, you have a book launch you know what I can do because I was in the book. Hmm. I was featured in the book. So I said, you know what I can do. Let me help you. Here's how I can help you. Now, cool. to be clear, the very first few, yeah, the price was lower, a lot lower than it is now. Right. Uh, and I was selling effectively that I'm pretty sure, but definitely 100% I can help you. Now I just go, here's what we did for other people. Right. Do you want the same? yes or no. And here's what we charge. And I'm not going to negotiate with you, you know, but back then, yeah, I mean, I, I way undercharged, but it got me those initial clients, you know, that now be became in many cases, the linchpin so that now they just come to us. I mean, the reality is we haven't solicited a client outside of that recent example. Uh, I've probably solicited four clients out of the last 70, yeah. you know, because they come to us, they know the reputation they're referred. They, they put, they post on Facebook. I don't even have to see it. I'll right. get tagged. Somebody will post in a comment. You need right. to talk to Matt McWilliams. Yeah, you became the recognized go-to expert. Hey, so let's say it's a year from now. So this is my favorite wrap-up question. Yeah. A year from now, I cross paths at you somewhere. We were at a conference or something. And I'm like, oh my God, Matt, it was so fun when we did this whole like uh, interview thing a year ago. What are you up to? What are you celebrating? I want to know, what are you most looking forward to a year from now? What are we going to be toasting you for having accomplished in this previous year? <laughs> 
so a year from now, I mean, gosh, like the mission for, for my book, Turn Your Passions Into Profits, is to help 20,000 people. 20,000 people start, scale, and monetize their business. All right. So what that means is one year from now, Robbie, we've got 20,000 people out there who've read the book, implemented it. They've discovered, they've clarified their passion. They know what they're passionate about. They've made this commitment to leading, you know, that we talked about earlier. They're, they've created lead magnets and they've, they've, they've got, you know, they're capturing attention. They built a community. They become the hero, the champion to their audience. And ultimately they're creating consistent content and monetizing that content. All right. So that's the whole process of the book, right? So they've gone from idea, from message to maybe they're kind of think this might be a thing to monetizing it. Uh, we want to help 20,000 people do that and have 20,000. I mean, there's so many stories in the book, Robbie, like yeah. we didn't even get to talk about so many like amazing stories. Uh, I want 20,000 more, you know, That's I just, awesome. I want to hear those stories. So what I'll be doing a year from now, hopefully is, is uh, saying to you, Robbie, when we run into each other at some conference, like, dude, let me tell you about Ann. Let me tell you about Alan. Let me tell you about so-and-so. Like, here's this amazing story. And this is another amazing story and another amazing story and story after story after story. And you're like, dude, I got to go to the bathroom, <laughs> you know, and eat some food. But like, that was awesome. <laughs> like, that's what I'm hoping happens a year from now. Wow, Matt, I can't wait to celebrate that with you. Uh, it's an incredible goal. And so many people, it's not just who you're going to help, but who they're going to help. The ripple effect will go on and on and on. You've got such good stuff. How can people find you and follow your work? Yeah, best way right now, if you go to passionsintoprofitsbook.com forward slash schmooze, that's a hard word for me to say, schmooze. Uh, just just type it. You don't have to say it out loud. So passionsintoprofitsbook.com forward slash schmooze. If you go there, we got tons of, of extra bonuses and uh, all kinds of stuff for your listeners, Robbie. So when they go there, they can grab a copy of the book. Uh, there's links there to my site. They can connect there. Got You can text me and all that stuff is on that page as well. But if you go there, that'll give people an opportunity to grab the book, read through it implement everything and be one of those 20,000 people that you and I'll be talking about hopefully a year from now, some, some random hallway at some random conference. You know, it's going to happen, Matt. Thank <laughs> you so much for all that. I'm going to put the links in the show notes at on Matt, thanks so much for this awesome conversation. Thanks for having me, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matt. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 315. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E.
This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.